2: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on
3: the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Mike Rockefeller of Woodline Partners launched what was uh, one of the hottest new hedge funds in a long time. 2019, he came out of the gate, having previously worked at Citadel, Uh, raising about $2 billion in the new fund. Uh, Since then, it's grown to about $7 billion, and they are not the typical hedge fund. They they run a very specific sector-focused type of fund. Uh, There are about 13 different portfolio managers, each focused on a different subsector. It's beta-neutral, market-neutral. They run long-short across each of these, and they've put up some pretty impressive numbers over the past couple of years. Uh, it's always interesting to speak to a fund manager in the midst of one of the craziest macro periods uh, of the markets that we've seen in God knows how long, who doesn't factor in macro events or the overall market because they're market neutral and hedged. and When they look at a sector, they want to be long the very best stocks at the best valuations they can, and short, the worst stocks at the worst valuations. It's a fascinating strategy, and it's one that's been very successful. With no further ado, my conversation with Woodline Partners, Mike Rockefeller. Thanks for having me, Barry. Looking forward to the conversation. Same here. In fact, we had a conversation at an emerging managers panel back uh, at Bloomberg Invest Um, earlier this year, and I thought you would be great for for a master's in business. So so let's dive into your background. How did you get here? Tell us a little bit about uh, the early days of your career.
4: Sure. So uh, I was a neuroscience major in undergrad. So I, I had no intention of uh, of being an investor. Pre
3: med. What is neuroscience?
4: Yeah, it's you know study of the brain and, and spinal cord. Uh, pretty specific. And you know I just uh, I love biology. You know the human body is so complex and we'll never quite understand it. Um, but I had this really unique experience uh, in between my junior and senior year of college. I got an internship. At a investment fund in Baltimore, and this was 2002 at the time, so they were not offering paid internships uh, because the market was still recovering from the tech bubble crash. But the chief investment officer offered me an unpaid internship, and he said, and this is what was interesting, that I could live with him and his family for the summer. So better uh, like him because I I know I know it's a big risk. But uh, I I did I, I went down there and I spent the summer and you know I, I love uh, sports Barry and you know I think they teach you so much about life I was not good enough to be a pro athlete but I was amazed how many similarities there were to investing and being an athlete you know the competition the practice the hard work the score and, and the uh, occasional randomness yes yeah. And, you know, except in in investing, the market is your competitor and your ability to understand businesses and what's priced into a stock better than your peers is how you win. Mm -hmm. So what was really amazing about that internship was was actually how Eric, the, the chief investment officer, practiced so what i mean by that is that on in in the morning he would wake up early and i and i saw how he prepared for the day on weekends i saw how he would prepare for the next week i remember walking into his living room on saturday mornings and there'd be newspapers and research reports and articles all over his living room and he said this is where it happens you know the the learning huh. so i was hooked i i said this this is this is what i want my my career to be and I was fortunate because I was 21 years old at the time, and from that moment, every step that I took was to get to where I am right now, I mean, sitting, you know, sitting huh. with you, Barry, and and uh, you know, investing and being um, a part of a great investment firm. So you start at the healthcare group as an analyst in City
3: in the early 2000s. Obviously, the background in neuro had to help.
4: Yeah, so after my experience in Baltimore, I I wanted to pivot to finance and came back to school and applied to every major investment bank. That did not go so well. Uh, No one called me back. It it was late in the process. Most, Most of the kids that were going into banking at that time already had their jobs. And I didn't have a background that banks wanted. I had never taken an accounting or finance class. But finally, Citi did call me back and invited me to interview. And I had four different interviews there and didn't get any of the jobs. And so I went throughout my senior year and didn't know exactly what I was gonna do. And fortunately, at the end of the year, a couple spots opened up, one in the healthcare division uh, of the investment bank, and they invited me in, I interviewed, and I, I I got the job. What, what was that job like? Well, a couple weeks before I joined Banking. Someone gave me a book called Monkey Business. Have you read that? I have not. So that that book is about bankers at DLJ in the nineties. You know, premier investment bank, and it talks about how uh, they worked eighteen-hour days, slept under their desk, endless pitch books every weekend. And I thought to myself, "There's no way it could be like this anymore." That was back then, and I have to tell you, Barry. It was exactly like that. It, <laughs> it was it was brutal, but I was so grateful because I knew my life could have been different, and so I was so happy to be there. I learned a lot of skills, and probably the most important skill that I learned was the basic principle of double and triple checking your work, and if you ever make a mistake, don't ever make it again.
3: Huh? Really, really interesting. So you go from City eventually to Millennium
4: and Morgan Stanley. Tell us about what you did at those shops. So in, in 2004, I joined Morgan Stanley Equity Research. That was great. They had a star-studded cast of research analysts. Byron Ween, uh, who sadly sure. passed away recently. He, he had retired, retired, but he was still active. Um, Henry McVeigh, who's now at KKR, he was the U.S. strategist. Katie Huberty, who's still there now, was a young, up-and-coming tech analyst. And I worked for Jamie Rubin, who was a top pharma analyst. And it was great preparation for the buy side, You know, writing research reports, doing the same kind of work that you would do as an investor, except you're making recommendations instead of on the buy side, you're actually putting those dollars to work and structuring portfolios. So,
3: so now let's talk a little bit about the buy side. Your next stop is Millennium.
4: What was it like there? So in early 2008, Millennium was looking for an analyst at one of their funds out in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I jumped at the opportunity. I'd never been in San Francisco. you were working in New York. I was at the working time. in New York, and I jumped on a plane and moved to San Francisco. That that was my shot, you know. So I I was I was I was in 2008
3: the start of the great financial crisis, what was it like being
4: at Millennium as everything kind of melted down? So Millennium employs a market neutral equity strategy. Long short, in other words. Exactly. And when I joined, I frankly didn't appreciate the power of that type of investing. And then the fall of 2008 came and I learned uh, the power of that type of investing. And to the credit of the portfolio manager that I was working with, Josh Fisher, we were actually up that year.
3: Wow, that, that's pretty. That's pretty impressive. So your next stop is Citadel in 2011, and you spend six years there. Citadel also, like Millennium, has a fantastic reputation.
4: What was your Citadel experience like? So during my time at Millennium, as my appreciation for proper portfolio construction started to grow, I had heard that Citadel was a pioneer in in this type of investing. So in two thousand and ten, when they were looking for someone to start their healthcare team in San Francisco, I I jumped at the opportunity. Right. Citadel didn't jump as quickly as I did. Uh, that was an eleven month interview process. Wow. Yeah, including. Uh, in all day what you would consider FBI like interview where they where they dig through every piece of your of your background. Uh, it was very intense. but fortunately Ken Griffin took a shot on me in what turned out to be a life-changing opportunity to build a business. And by the way, everything that I had heard on the outside about the quality of people at Citadel and the investment process that they employ it was all true. Wow So that had to be a fun experience. Had to be a tough decision
3: to make to leave a shop like Citadel.
4: It was. My, my partners and I were incredibly fortunate to grow up at Citadel. It was there that we learned a unique and differentiated approach to portfolio construction and investing, where the output was an un- uncorrelated alpha return stream.
3: What made you decide to say, hey, we really need to do this as a standalone outside of a big, complex fund like
4: Citadel? Yeah, so Wood, Woodline was founded by myself, uh, Carl Craker, our co-chief investment officer, Matt Hooker, our chief operating officer, and then a group of us who worked together for for many years. And we, we studied the industry leaders of the past 20 years, and we believed that we could iterate and improve on those learnings, and create a durable investment firm that would thrive in the future. And and our vision was to create an investment partnership like you'd find with a Wellington or a Capital Group, mm-hmm. with the risk management expertise of Citadel, wrapped in a specialist structure at Woodline. So,
3: what was it like when you had to tell Ken, "Hey, this has been great, but uh, I want to I want to hang my own uh, shingle out." How supportive was he?
4: The whole process was exciting, difficult, scary, wonderful. um, All all of those things and leaving a successful career and starting your own business makes no sense on paper. (laughs) The chance of failure is so high and it was a bad decision financially initially. Um, So we had to make a choice between comfort and, and, and creation. And I remember reading Jeff Bezos' bio at the time, and it talks about how Jeff was working at D. Shaw yep. in the mid-90s, and he had a great job. And he had an idea to start an internet company. So he goes to David Shaw, and he tells him about his idea. And David Shaw says, Jeff, this is a great idea for someone who doesn't already have a great job. You know, Why don't you take the weekend to think about it? So Jeff went home, and he applied what he coined as the regret minimization theory. Yep. Basically, when he's 80 years old, what's he, what decision is he gonna regret less? And he chose out Amazon, which worked out very well for him.
3: L- literally threw all his stuff in a car and drove across country that next Monday.
4: Yeah, and, and it was so inspiring. Obviously, Amazon is a different scale, but I will say, I, I asked myself a similar question, which is, do I wanna go on this journey even if I never get to where I'm going,
3: huh? Really, really,
4: quite fascinating.
3: What was the most surprising thing you learned when you were launching your own firm? what What kind of struck you as, huh, I didn't really expect that to happen.
4: I think how difficult it was to raise money. you know it was it was a rough first few months. D- didn't you guys launch with a big chunk of cash though, like two billion dollars? We did but we had trouble finding investors in the beginning and we had a lot of people on board who left great jobs who were relying on us to get funding and little so a little bit of pressure there a little bit of pressure yeah, yeah. and then, you know it's 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 a different kind of pressure when you when you're now responsible for so many people and so we eventually made the decision to fly to the middle east to meet with a, a large investor hoping they would partner with us and on the flight over, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, I looked up, the whole plane was dark, except for one light on in the back of coach. And that was our COO, Matt Hooker, cranking away. And uh, to say we were prepared for that meeting you know, is an understatement. So we get all the way over there, they brought, they brought us into this huge auditorium to present to their team. And you know, we were like, okay, this is it, this is our chance. One gentleman comes in, he sits down, we waited a few minutes. We then asked where everyone else was, and he said he was the only one coming. Everyone else was busy. <laughs> so, oh my God. so we ended up presenting to just him, and uh, suffice to say, we walked away empty-handed. Uh-huh. But fortunately, a couple weeks later, two partners came to the table and anchored our launch, and like that, we were, we were in business. Wow,
3: really, really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about um, your launch in 2019. You come out of the gate pretty fast. Not a lot of emerging managers start with uh, over a billion dollars. You guys were close to $2 billion. You know, you have since really ran that up in the, in the ensuing um, four years to over $7 billion. Tell us a little bit about how you built the firm and, and
4: how it's structured. So we structured Woodline to enable... Our world-class decision-makers to operate at their very best. And and there's a few key elements to that. One is we have a deep specialist approach, so where our teams are experts in the stocks that they cover. We also have a sole coverage model. So that means one person or one team is responsible for their group of names. No, No overlap. Our teams are also small and autonomous, such that they can make decisions because we believe that People closest to the ground can make the best portfolio management decisions. And since I mentioned uh, Bezos earlier, he has a great quote. He says, great teams should be small enough such that you can feed all of them with two pizzas. That, that's a good concept. We believe our senior team should have many years of experience perfecting their craft. There's a gentleman named Anders Ericsson. He's done great work on mastery. And he says that expert performance requires intense and deliberate practice for at least 10 years. RPMs have 18 years of experience.
3: Huh. So you started with about 25 employees. You have since ramped that up to over 75 people. What's it like managing uh, all those people and,
4: and that degree of growth? We set up a co-CIO model to deal with that very issue, so that we could attract the best talent, leverage the skills and capabilities of Carl and myself, allowing us to have more time both to invest. And we also set up a management structure of Matt, Carl, and myself, where every decision is made with a two-thirds vote. And that allows us to really delineate uh, our duties to where we see fit and has provided us uh, the ability to manage a very complex infrastructure.
3: So so uh, no ties. It takes two of you to really move a decision forward. Um, Carl is your co-CIO, Matt is running operations. So how much does that free you and Carl up to
4: focus on the investing? We get that question a lot. And we tell investors that Both Carl and I spend more time now as co-CIOs of Woodline actually investing in our portfolios than we did at Citadel, which is an amazing stat. And is that because of the the
3: structure where you began with someone running operations, it wasn't an afterthought a
4: few years down the road? Exactly. Yeah, that, that structure was thought out so that we could focus on investing rather than having to spend all of our days managing people.
3: So let's talk about some of those people. You have 13 portfolio managers, plus uh, including you and Carl. Um, you, you've talked about a
4: player-coach model. Explain what that is. So that's correct. So 13 PMs, including Carl and myself. We also have very se- seasoned analysts running portfolios, some not. Uh, these are people truly the best at what they do. And what we mean by player-coach is that Carl and I didn't want to just take the traditional chief investment officer role of management. We wanted to invest. And so Carl and I actually run individual portfolios within Woodline. So Carl runs a semiconductor portfolio. Myself and my team, led by Anish Kapoor and Brian Schmidt, run a biopharma portfolio. And we spend most of our days on those portfolios.
3: And then how much time do you devote to managing the other um, 11 or so PMs?
4: I would say we spend about 75% of our time on our existing portfolios that we're running and the remainder of our time ma- managing others and thinking st- about uh, the business strategically.
3: So so let's talk about your investment process. You come from a biotech background. Uh, Carl has a uh, semiconductor background. Tell us a little bit about a, a process that has A dozen or so different PMs, each with a different focus.
4: We each have a different focus, but we all have the same bottoms-up fundamental research process. The teams spend the majority of their time on research and learning about the companies that they cover. Each team covers a small group on average of about 50 to 70 names so they can understand them better. And they come up with unique insights on those stocks in their universe that may not be appreciated by the market and then structure portfolios around those ideas. So when we think of the typical
3: bottoms-up stock picker, it it, it seems like there's a whole lot of variation. Um, but, But lots of funds tend to look like other funds. You guys seem to look very different than the typical either sector-focused or bottoms-up, stock-picking-focused fund. What, What makes Woodline a little different, a little more unique?
4: It really comes down to our portfolio construction. We hedge out not just market beta, but any factors that we can't predict. We focus solely on what is predictable, and we construct portfolios around that so that we don't Succumb to factors that are moving the market on a day in and day out basis. G- That's the key us, differentiation.
3: Give Give us some examples of those factors that you're looking to hedge out.
4: Yes. Yeah, so in addition to beta, you know, there, there's many factors that are moving stocks outside of what is Id- idiosyncratic to a particular company. In fact, you can you can model these factors and and their influence on stocks. So momentum, value, growth, short interest, and and like other macro cross currents. We don't have a unique advantage in predicting these factors, so we hedge them out.
0: Huh.
3: So so you describe your key overriding strategy as market neutral, equity focused on, on the global healthcare sector. Let, let's break that down. Market neutral means are, uh, most of the time you're running long short. Is it long short against the
4: market or long short within the sector? We run neutral to the market mm-hmm. and to the subsector that we're in both. Yes.
3: So that's got to be a challenging strategy to to create for hedging
4: both at the same time. That and that's why we have a specialist structure. So we instead of having a healthcare PM or a tech PM, we have a semiconductors PM, we have a medical device PM just focusing on on those 50 to 70 names within those subsectors, and then structuring portfolios within those subsectors. So you have to be a specialist to to take this approach. And a
3: lot of funds that have found success seem to have run some pretty concentrated portfolios. They hit a couple of big winners, and and it's worked out. You don't take that approach. Woodline has about 1,200 positions. That seems almost like a closet index But your performance doesn't track an index. You guys are absolutely not closet indexers. Why so many
4: positions? The reason why it exists is because of our 20 individually constructed subsector portfolios that feed up into a master fund. And the end result of that is over 1,000 unique positions.
3: So less concentrated exposure. What does that big of a set of holdings do to the fund's uh, volatility
4: and, and return p- patterns? So we offer investors an uncorrelated, diversified return stream. Investors can expect us to be up or down 1% a month, and our, our vol is a, around you know 5% uh, annually. Huh. Not,
3: not, not too bad. Um, what do you do in terms of risk management? How do you stay on top of, um, obviously you don't have a whole lot of concentration risk, but just generally speaking, what's the risk management process like?
4: So each of the portfolios are running a high idiosyncratic ball portfolio Mm -hmm. on their own. And it all feeds up into the master fund, which creates a great product. But we also monitor that from a top level. Both uh, Carl and and Matt and myself, uh, you know, will uh, meet weekly and look daily at our exposures and make any adjustments so that we continue to make sure that we are completely neutral to any macro factors.
3: Huh. Quite quite intriguing. So let's talk about some of those sectors you focus on: tech, healthcare, industrials, energy, and
4: consumer. Why these sectors? They they almost seem unrelated. Well, the primary driver in deciding where to invest is great talent. That's what we look at first. The secondary component is that we look for subsectors that have the most disruption, innovation, and stock-specific idiosyncratic volatility.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold mm-hmm. Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
2: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
3: Those sectors that you're focusing on, there's the greatest mispricing versus uh, what the market believes how, how, how do you how do you look at these subsectors versus
4: the general consensus usually they have the greatest complexity uh, and the the greatest disruption and therefore there's a there's a larger spread between winners and losers and that's what's required to have a portfolio where the performance is really driven by our relative stock picking
3: Huh. Uh, that's interesting. In the past, you've mentioned that Woodline established a network of corporate execs and industry relationships. Tell us how you're using this network to generate alpha.
4: So we're very fortunate to spend our days building relationships with some of the world's leading executives. And these executives have a full plate of managing complex businesses. And so we're appreciative of the time that they spend with us and the members of the Woodline team we have a responsibility to create a mutually beneficial engagement, and so we need to be well-prepared, ask thoughtful questions, and hopefully find ways to add value in terms of what we're seeing across the industry. And then in return, we get to have a front row seat of what these companies are doing and where they're going. Huh. Interesting.
3: So in, in the way you structured the firm, you Woodline does not have a full pass-through, Tell us a little bit about firms that do have a pass-through and and why you elected not to go that way.
4: That was one of the most important questions to answer when when setting up the firm. We believed that establishing a partnership model, more akin to what you would find with a private equity shop, Mm -hmm. as the best approach. And we're called Woodline Partners for a reason. The partnership structure, coupled with our sole coverage model, has allowed us to compete effectively for talent. So so let's talk a little bit about that. On a pass-through model,
3: if you're a, a fund manager that's doing well and the firm is doing poorly, you still get full bonuses and everything else. Everybody else takes a hit. This is more of a all-for-one-and-one-for-all um, one one all sort of a three musketeers approach. Everybody is a partner in the firm, not just running their own independent fiefdom.
4: That's correct, and, and it really in aligns incentives with our employees and our LPs so that we're all driving for the same goal.
3: What does the lack of a pass-through do when you're competing for talent?
4: So far, it has not impacted us because the partnership model has been an attractive component to candidates looking at Woodline. And also the sole coverage is an important component. When you are looking at a platform and you join uh, you know, another multi-manager, you're one of two, three, four, six, eight, 20 teams covering the same stocks. Right. And it's more of a mercenary type of approach. At Woodline, we only have one software PM. That's Elliot Wilson. You know, we only have one medical device PM. That's Chris Hawkins. They are the key people. So so given that, let, let's
3: talk about some of those subsectors. Um, when you say you cover tech, how many different subsectors are under technology?
4: There are four subsectors currently under technology. There are four subsectors currently under healthcare, and we break them up, biotech, services, pharma, semiconductors. We have a Japanese tech PM. We have a Japanese consumer PM. We have a consumer health and wellness PM. These are all very specialized subsectors.
3: When you say Japanese tech, we're talking about companies in Japan that you're buying here. That's right. Huh. Really interesting. So each PM works for a specific fund. It's not- part of a whole pooled fund? How how does that break down?
4: It's a good question. It's all one fund that provides diversified access to all of our subsector portfolios. Part of the challenge for sector-specific funds over the past decade is the higher volatility and lower SHARP associated with that approach.
3: So so one of the sectors you cover is energy. Um, It's been a kind of uh, odd... Space the past couple of years, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, oil spikes, and by the end of the year, it's below where it was when the invasion starts. Now we have the war in the Middle East. Oil falls below $80. How do you contextualize oil, and what other energy subsectors do you, do you look at? Do you look at non-carbon energy? What, what else is in that area?
4: So energy was one of those sectors that we didn't initially launch with. And uh, the reason why was because uh, there was a lot of correlation among the companies within energy. And with all that's gone on in the world, including clean energy, there's been a lot more dispersion among energy companies and, has, and have allowed us to, first of all, find a great analyst covering those names, uh, but also to run a high idiosyncratic portfolio. So that's why we entered the, the sector. Hey, it's a really exciting time in healthcare. The mRNA
3: drugs have been applied to all sorts of different things beyond COVID. The obesity drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi are, are finding amazing traction and having great results. This is your space, the, the healthcare sector. What's it like in this area uh, these days?
4: It's an incredibly exciting time to be a healthcare investor. Science has gotten to the point where we are understanding biology and how to target uh, areas that we hadn't known for decades. And we're seeing some incredible results. You know, We've made some breakthroughs in Alzheimer's disease. We've made some breakthroughs in obesity and in diabetes, in cancer. And so to be a healthcare investor right now is probably the best time that I've seen in the last 20 years.
3: Huh? Really interesting. So you mentioned cancer. Uh, cell therapeutics looks like it's a fascinating area. What, what's happening in that medical space?
4: Cell therapy is very exciting. You basically take a patient's cells out, you infuse them and put them back in the patient's body to fight the cancer. And we've had remarkable results, particularly in uh, types of blood cancer. But now we are starting to see the promise to work on solid tumors using this approach. And it comes down to the industrial complex around these because you have to manufacture these cells for each individual patient.
3: It has to match their own genetics.
4: Um, you have to take the cells out of a person's body and um, align it just for that individual person and then put them back in. And so this is not something that you can do like a pill where you're where you're manufacturing millions of these. Uh, this is a one-by-one approach. And so we have to figure out a way to make it more efficient, less costly, but I'm confident we'll do that.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold mm-hmm. Card.
1: top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
3: So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in terms of the hedge fund industry. 11,000 hedge funds today go back 25 years. There were, I don't know, a couple of hundred. Um, Are there too many hedge funds? Has it gotten too crowded? Tell us about... Uh, What the space is like.
4: The growth in the number of hedge funds has slowed recently, and we think that will likely continue as the consolidation of talent into the large platform models appears structural. And like any fast-growing business, there will be winners and losers. But the platforms offer a material value proposition to their portfolio managers and limited partners alike and will likely survive various market regimes.
3: So define what you mean by platform business models. I think a lot of people may not be familiar with that term.
4: So when I talk about the platforms, some some people refer to them as the multi-managers. Mm-hmm. You know, the big market leaders are Citadel and Millennium. Right. And Coincidentally, two places you happen to have worked. That's right, that's right. And you know, what the platforms offer is two things. One, from a PM and analyst standpoint, They allow PMs and analysts to invest in their portfolios and not worry about the operational complexities of running a business. That's huge. And from an LP standpoint, there are lots of decision makers, so there are lots of ideas, and it results in a uncorrelated, diversified alpha return stream, and one that an LP can do in a single investment versus the complexity of multiple investments in many funds. So
3: when you were at both Citadel and Millennium, you didn't have to deal with any of the operational challenges. What has it been like pivoting to running a business, hiring people, dealing with regulations, managing people, dealing with clients and LPs, How different is this experience from from what you had previously?
4: It's complex and it's critically important to have a fully built out infrastructure to support your investment team and manage the operations of your business. And we're fortunate to have Matt Hooker and his team doing that for us very effectively and allows our investment team to invest even more than we were at Citadel, which is incredible. So so
3: we've talked about a lot of different funds. We mentioned D Shaw, we mentioned Millennium, we mentioned Citadel. Each of those have a very specific corporate culture driven by the founder. How do you create a corporate culture at your own fund?
4: I just watched an interview where Ray Dalio was speaking to Bill Belichick, the head coach of the Patriots. Uh Uh-huh. Bill had just earned his three hundredth career win. And Ray is all about principles. And so he, he asked Bill what his principles as a head coach are. And Bill said, put your team first, do your job, and continually focus on improvement. And these are the key principles to any successful organization. And they're certainly part of the, D- the DNA of Woodline. But a football team has a lot in common with a successful investment firm. You know, on a football team, you have a little over 50 people who dress for the game, plus an entire organization around that. And everyone dreams of being the quarterback or the star running back. But the success of a team is driven by all those people who are doing jobs that may not have that, that same kind of glorified role. And at Woodline, Carl likes to say that people join because they choose to be on a great team rather than being an all-star on an okay team. And I think that's true. And I like to think of Woodline as an organization of linemen, defensive ends, and kickers, where every role is celebrated and every person critical to achieving its goals.
3: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about return quality. You've discussed this previously. How do you define return quality, and, and what do you have to do to deliver it?
4: So ultimately, the goal for all investors across strategies, public, private, is to generate uncorrelated alpha. And it starts with good risk management and optimal portfolio construction. If you look at the average investment fund, it has a risk profile of around 30% idiosyncratic risk. So let's flip that around. That means the average investment firm has 70% of their performance that will be influenced by macro and market factors. That's not high quality. And we think the industry can do better than that.
3: And uh, you cover North America, Europe, and Asia. Are you seeing more opportunities in one geography versus another? The, the world really is pretty uncorrelated these days.
4: We see opportunities for our strategy in the U.S., Japan, and Europe. Japan especially has been a house of fire lately. The, the Nikkei
3: is up substantially. I don't think we're all that far from the prior peaks before their big uh, collapse in 89. What is it that's driving Japan, despite all of their demographic problems and everything else, what's happening over there?
4: Well, what makes a good market for us is breadth of companies, liquidity, and having a rules-based system. And in any of these markets, the market being up or down really doesn't matter to us. If tomorrow you told me the market was gonna be up 5% or down 5%, it would likely have very little impact on the performance of Woodline. And so we really look at talent and then the types of companies that are within a market that we can structure a diversified portfolio with. So if
3: I say to you, US has been really strong economically and Japan has been doing well, but Europe has been limping along. They've been rolling recessions from the UK to Germany to France. They can't get out of their own way. You don't care about that macro stuff. You want to find the right company at the right price.
4: And we want to pick the winners and the losers. And we want to structure portfolios around those winners and losers. And the market just does not matter.
3: Huh. That's really that's really quite fascinating. All right. We only have you for a limited amount of time So I'm gonna jump to my favorite questions I ask all of my guests. Starting with, uh, what have you been uh, streaming these days? Tell us what you're either watching or listening to, either video or podcasts or whatever's keeping you entertained.
4: Most recently I've been listening to Founders, Mm -hmm. where David Senra summarizes the biographies of past leaders and entrepreneurs. Interesting.
3: Um, Let's talk about your mentors who helped shape your career?
4: Well, Ken Griffin is a larger than life figure and, and teacher that leaves an imprint about how you think about things your entire life. Uh, I'd also say that Brandon Haley, who started Holocene, he was the first of our group at Citadel to launch his own fund. And he blazed a path for Woodline and, and others and was critical in, in helping all of us get started. Woodline wouldn't be here without him. And then on a personal level, level my father, uh, for teaching me the value of loyalty and hard work and, and consistency. Uh, I've been really fortunate, Barry, so I, I could go on for a while.
3: Let's talk a little about books, some of your favorites and what you're reading right now. You mentioned
4: um, Monkey Business. What, what other books are you enjoying? One of my all-time favorites is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Have you read that? Yes. Really interesting. Yeah. It's so great. What I love about that is after a long and sometimes grueling road for him building Nike, he said he could he wished he could go back and do it all over again.
3: I recall that. I thought that was the most bonkers thing in the whole book.
4: Yeah.
3: Like after <laughs> s- literally selling shoes out of the trunk of his car and not knowing if they're going to have enough money to pay vendors and constantly getting by on the skin of their teeth. The the first third of that book is like I I know the outcome and it still feels like they're not going to make it. They're just skating by.
4: Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing and it's inspiring for any entrepreneur. Any other books you want to mention or I'm reading Musk right now. Um, and that's uh
3: Walter Isaacson. Yes. That looks that's that that looks like it's too big to read. It's a giant tome. I'm a it?
4: third of the way through. Yeah. What I didn't know, maybe I should have known this, was that Elon actually started SpaceX before he took over Tesla. Right. He didn't start Tesla. He joined it. He didn't
3: start PayPal. He joined it, but SpaceX was his baby. Exactly. Yeah. He was thinking
4: about space travel, you know, from a very early age.
3: Huh. Quite interesting. Uh, And our final two questions what sort of advice would you give to a college grad interested in a career in investing or, or hedge funds?
4: Place learning and experience over salary and title.
3: No matter what. No matter what. You got, you got to get those fundamentals down. The money will take care of itself later. Exactly. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew when you were first starting out 15, 20 years ago?
4: So I, w- I was fortunate enough to spend time with Will am from the Black Eyed Peas a couple of years uh-huh. ago. And I was asking him, Will, what, what was it that really made you so successful? And he said that at a very early age, when he was in high school, he started looking forward 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And then he would envision himself then and then work backward. Backward. So I would say, you know, let's all be like Will I Am and uh, look thirty years ahead and envision what the future will look like, so we don't miss out.
3: Huh? Re- really interesting, Mike. Thanks for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Mike Rockefeller, co-chief investment officer and co-founder of Woodline Partners. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out. Any of the previous 500 discussions we've had over the past nine years, you can find those at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helped put these conversations together. Each week, Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Sean Russo is my researcher. Anna Luke is my producer. I'm Barry Ridhulz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.